Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello and welcome to the DMH Meet the Professor podcast. We are here today with Assistant Professor Ben Schneider, Dr. Ben Schneider, excuse me. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your education and your background. Uh, I did a bachelor's at the University of Rochester, scenic Rochester, New York, where it snows all the time. I did a double major, double minor, uh, history and political science, and then uh, ethics and economics. So. And then I went to George Washington University where I did a master's in history. Uh, I looked at the uh, Biafran genocide, the U.S. role in the Biafran genocide for my thesis, and then went to George Mason University for my Ph.D., uh, which I completed in 2019, uh, working on uh, war crimes in the European theater of the Second World War. After I finished up there, I went and did a postdoctoral fellowship at the Naval War College where I taught in the Department of Strategy and Policy for a year at their uh, intermediate level command and staff course. Okay. Um, give us an idea of, of you, men, you mentioned uh, war crimes, but give us an idea of what you research on and what your interests are. Uh, so I look specifically at war crimes committed by members of the United States Army in Europe during World War II. So that's massacres of uh, Axis POWs, killings of civilians, uh, small-scale incidents ranging from single killings all the way up to massacres of uh, 50 to 100 to 150 people. Um, I look at both the how these crimes fit within the broader way that the Army uses and thinks about violence and how the combat arms conceptualize and deal with these incidents within their own ranks, uh, but also how this winds up intersecting with military justice, how the Army attempts to uh, enforce international law and U.S. law within its own ranks and try to limit and contain the way in which violence is used, the conflict that that generates between sort of the, uh, the higher civilian and military authority and commanders on the ground and uh, the enlisted and non-commissioned officers who often have very different ideas than national leadership about how war should be fought. Mm-hmm. So when we in America think of World War II, we, we have a, a decidedly triumphalist kind of view of it, right? Especially in Europe. Yeah. We're the liberators of Europe. Um, how do you make what you study, which it more or less knocks the leg out from under triumphalism, right? How do you make that, how do you marry that to um, kind of the popular image that the American might have of those campaigns? Uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting in that um, I would argue that the popular image of World War II actually has a lot more to do with the kind of work that I do than uh, a lot of academic histories have had, had, have had for many years. Um, if you look at some of the very earliest published memoirs on the Second World War, uh, American soldiers talk, quite frankly, about the killing of prisoners, the killing of civilians, the kinds of brutality that's going on in the course of these campaigns. Uh, and if you look at popular histories going all the way back to the 1980s, you will see uh, popular historians writing about the frequency with which prisoners are killed by Allied forces. Uh, Max Hastings uh, estimates that uh, fully, uh, no, I think Max Hastings says that every 
allied soldier that he talked to for writing his book on D-Day talked about either witnessing or hearing about or participating in the killing of prisoners of war. Stephen Ambrose, generally associated with the triumphalist narrative, uh, in fact estimates in his book Citizen Soldiers that uh, he says that roughly a third of the veterans that he spoke to had personal knowledge of those kinds of killings. Uh, these are detailed in very popular films and television series. You can see this in Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, it goes back as early as The Longest Day, where they have a, a ranger at Point du Hoc shoot a, a man with his hands up. So the American public, in some ways, is sort of aware of these kinds of crimes, um, but it's, of course, entwined with the broader, the broader question of the good war, right, and the, the stark nature of the divide between Nazi Germany and the extermination camps and the, uh, the efforts of Western democracies to, at least as it's popularly envisioned, to sort of dismantle that, uh, that system. Mm-hmm. You, you say, and, and you, you're citing lots of sources that talk about this as, as almost ubiquitous. Um, how common were U.S. war crimes during World War II? Um, as, again, we're kind of going at this Studs-Turkle good war narrative. Uh, yeah, so uh, interestingly enough, Studs-Turkle also details a number of these uh, incidents and atrocities in his book, The Good War. Um, there's not a satisfying answer to that question because the records that would let us make a clear determination don't exist. This was not something that was paid attention to by the Army's military justice system in a way that would let us really get a rigorous answer to that question. My own estimate after reading hundreds and hundreds of these kinds of accounts and looking at the official record uh, is that this is, um, to use, to quote, Earl Bailey, uh, an infantryman who had fought in the war, that these weren't common, but they happened all the time. Uh, Generally speaking, a, a company that sees itself on the line for probably between 60 and 90 days will have at least one of these incidents uh, if they're in combat for the duration of that. Um, most, most people who talk about these incidents in letters or memoirs, it's not something that they're hearing about from somewhere else in the division or somewhere else in the theater. It's, it's people that they know personally and their social circles generally extend out to about the company level. Um, so it's Sergeant so-and-so or Lieutenant so-and-so was involved in this. They often don't name them because of the time they're writing they're concerned that there may be legal repercussions. Right. Um, but these are not sort of amorphous incidents. They're specific identifying details, um, and they are, they are very common, uh, at least to have people who have heard of them uh, in the source material. And it's interesting. So when you say they're writing about it, are we talking journals? Are we talking letters home? Uh, journals... Uh, Journals are probably the most common, or oral histories. Uh, if you right. look at the Library of Congress, which has collected a huge number of these uh, these narratives, they, they pop up all over the place there. Uh, letters home, I've found some examples of, though during the war, censorship makes that an issue. Right, right. That's, uh, where, that's where I was going with that. Yeah. yeah um, but, but you do see some, right? There are some, particularly in the immediate aftermath, uh, there are some fascinating letters that get sent back, uh, particularly as the Nuremberg trials wind up. And there are a number of American soldiers who write both about that and about Malmody with a, a really, I found, a shocking amount of sympathy for perpetrators of those crimes, um, sort of saying, you know, we, we also engaged in this sort of behavior. 
uh, and this this justice is being handed down in sort of a very um, scattershot way. Um, now, some of that was was an indictment of the the kind of war that had been fought on on all sides, and some of it was um, the the guys who fight in the infantry are not uh, thrilled with sort of the moral program that gets placed on what they do versus what the uh, the air force is doing. Um, but that's uh, that's a separate set of issues. Right, right. The strategic bombing campaign, of course. Uh, do you think that the lack of quantifiable data is a result of a deliberate erasure or just kind of an elision? So some of it is a deliberate erasure. Um, there's a, a large-scale massacre that takes place in the 11th Armored Division during the Battle of the Bulge. Patton writes about in his diary uh, the entry for that says, 11th Armored Division, very green, took many losses to no effect, also murdered about 100 German men, hope we can conceal this. We know that that happened. There's a report that Eisenhower commissions at the end of the war looking into war crimes cases like this. Uh, we have from his headquarters a, an order going out to the 11th Armored Division saying, you know, we've heard that this has happened, we've had a couple of witnesses, we have those witness statements. Um, we need you to send your report, your investigation on this. And the 11th Armored Division essentially writes them back, says, oh, sorry, we lost the paperwork. And then they send back another uh, request saying, hey, we need you to send this report. And they get a response back from the Army saying, we're sorry, the 11th Armored Division no longer exists. It's been demobilized. And anyone who would have that knowledge is uh, no longer in theater. So you're just going to have to make it work. So there is things like that, but I think more broadly, it's just that the way in which these incidents happen is very often in or around the front. And so these are areas where there's not, people are not taking a lot of time to engage in any kind of paperwork. Discipline is loose and informal. Um, it's very much about uh, sort of personal ties and in-unit loyalties and um, you know, sergeants who are able to exert that kind of uh, leadership by example. And just no one is writing these things down um, because you don't have time and you don't have the energy. And the fighting is so aggressive that by the time these units rotate back to an area where you might be able to talk about or write about these kinds of things, many of the people who are involved are dead uh, or have been wounded and recycled back to the states. Uh, and are, are simply out of the reach of the military justice system. And so if these people are, if there's no punishment that can be reasonably meted down and no investigation that can reasonably be done, uh, there can't have seemed to have been a lot of incentive to actually talk to anyone about getting something. Right, right. That. Yeah, and of course you don't want to speak ill of the dead. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think that they squared, they being, you know, U.S., um, military personnel, citizens squared on one hand the knowledge of these kinds of war crimes and on the other hand the prosecution of war crimes as you mentioned at, at Nuremberg. So the there's an awareness of the contradiction between sort of uh, expecting expecting that the Germans wouldn't engage in this kind of conduct and knowing that Americans had uh, and I'd, I'd alluded to an investigation Eisenhower has conducted. And it's very explicit when he gives the order uh, shortly after the war ends. He says, you know, we're going to have these Nuremberg trials. We're going to be putting Germans on trial for these same kind of crimes. We have to make sure that we've cleaned house, that anybody who's involved in this, anyone at all in the Army who may have condoned this or been a part of it, they have to go up before a court too. 
The problem is, is that he does this in 45. At the very end, after the infantry, the, the organizations that are engaging in most of these crimes have suffered horrific losses, 100, 150, 200% casualties, higher in the rifle companies themselves, uh, particularly amongst the most aggressive fighters who are disproportionately likely to engage in these sorts of crimes. Um, and so many of the people who are involved are simply dead or wounded or gone, uh, and also after the process of demobilization has started. So what he finds is that there's simply, even if there's the appetite to do this kind of large-scale reckoning, there's not the ability. They simply haven't been doing the groundwork earlier on to be able to allow them to engage in these kind of trials. And once you're in that position where you know that it happened, but you can't rectify it, but you have to have the Nuremberg trials after you liberate Dachau and you see the camps and all of this, you right. have to do something about that, you're in a position where you can either acknowledge that it happened but not be able to say how bad or what, um, or you make it go away. And they chose the option of making it go away. Right, right, yeah. So, you study a very dark subject. <laughs> I'm fun at parties. <laughs> I can imagine. How do you keep yourself centered in that? How do you keep yourself from kind of drowning in the despair of these war crimes? Uh, so, I'm, uh, I don't know, I might just be slightly cracked. Um, so, I'd, I'd heard, um, I'd read uh, an account from uh, an Israeli soldier who'd fought in one of the wars in Lebanon, and he, he had talked about, he had been a photographer before he had gone to fight, and he had talked about how when he was in the war, he was able to keep himself sane by, he would put up sort of, he would imagine everything that he was seeing through the camera lens. How do you get the shot? How do you translate the world around you in through this very specific framework? Um, and he talks about how at some point his camera broke and that broke him, uh, which I hope doesn't happen to me. But for me, for me, I'm able to use sort of the analytical tools of the historian to, uh, to gain some degree of emotional distance from it. Um, I'm able to look at it as a set of uh, problems and questions, and, and that distances it, me from the emotional rawness of it. Now, that's, that only works so far. I work on murder, specifically. There are people out there, increasing number of people out there, who work on sexual assault and those problems during the war. Uh, I have a much more difficult time doing those cases personally, um, that kind of uh, brutality I, I can't separate from as much. Cases that involve kids um, are also much harder, uh, and um, sort of the, the mass extermination of civilians and the, the sort of thing that you see it in Auschwitz or with the, the Einsatzgruppen, um, that's, again, that's harder for me. But I, I've found sort of a, a particular place in which I can uh, intellectualize it enough that it, it doesn't bother me as much as much as people generally assume it would. So, oh, it's, it's certainly something to be said for that that Ronkian approach, right? <laughs> uh, I, kind of stepping out more broadly and mm -hmm. talking about World War II. Um, it's, obviously, it's a very large field. It's mm -hmm. a field that's very interesting to lots yeah. of people. Um, what do you find interesting and exciting about where the, that field is headed? Uh, I think one of the things that World War II, the study of World War II has, is that we've got so much good work that's been done at this point that there are a lot of really fantastic, synthetic, large-scale works that are being done. Academic history is very often, and my own work included, is often very much sort of at a niche level, uh, very small-scale questions, um, 
often of not broad popular interest. World War II is lucky in that even our small scale questions are often interesting to people. Right. Uh, but you can you can see some really fantastic um, sort of big histories. Uh, you know, there have been a number of uh, you know uh, Rick Atkinson's three volume uh, history of uh, the Western European campaign. Um, it's gotten a lot of attention. Richard Evans has written a magisterial history of the, the Third Reich that is both uh, phenomenal in terms of its scholarship and its scope. Um, and you know, the, those kinds of sort of macro level histories are, are coming out for World War II in a way that they're not um, for some other uh, other conflicts where it's sort of uh, more difficult to sell those sorts of things and more right. difficult to get the, the, gr the groundwork, the scholarly groundwork laid for it. So Yeah, as somebody who works in a field that's uh, close to that in 18th century France, I, I do envy you the, the popular interest. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. And uh, I was, someone told me at one point that uh, bo books about Nazis and horses will always sell. So Yep, yeah, and the, uh, the shelves at popular bookstores will show that, right? Yes, indeed, right. <laughs> All right, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Schneider. Thank you so much for having me. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.